going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. This is the passage that was read for us a little bit earlier. I'm not going to read the whole passage again, but I do want to read verses specifically, verses 9 through 11, to start our time off here in, in God's Word. Matthew 21, starting in verse 11. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Who is this? They said, who is this? Well, today is what is known as Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter Sunday. Uh, it is the Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He's coming in to Jerusalem with one purpose, and that one purpose is for him to die. That's the whole reason that he's coming into Jerusalem. In fact, his whole life is lived with one purpose, and that is to die. Now, you say, well, that's, that's not very different because every single one of us die, Right? We all live, and, and we know that one day we are going to die. And, and you're right, we do die. It's not much different except in this. This death, the death of Jesus, was not deserved in any way. None whatsoever. We die. You and I will die one day because of the curse of sin. This, this world is, is cursed, and, and it leads to death. Our bodies are going to deteriorate, and that deterioration leads to death. Jesus was not stained by sin in any way whatsoever. He wasn't stained by the curse of sin, so he didn't deserve to die. If Jesus died, it would only happen through a conscious decision that he made to die, even though he didn't have to. And that's the only he is, the only human being that that has ever applied to. Palm Sunday is that day where we, where we remember Jesus entering into his place of death, even though his, his death is still five days away, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on purpose to put himself in a position to be killed. Right? We're going to talk more about that here in just a moment, okay? But here's a question that I want to ask you, and, um, and maybe you can think creatively here for just a moment. But has there ever been an event that you and someone else interpreted differently, completely differently? And if you're married right now, you can put your hand up and say, yes, I've seen that happen. All right? That pretty much happens for all of us, okay? There, 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 something happens, and I interpret it one way, and somebody else interprets it this other way. It, here's an example. I heard a story one time about four people who are riding in the same kind of small stall on a, on a train. There's two on one side, two on the other. They're facing each other. On one side is a basketball player and his coach. On the other side is a college-age girl um, who, is, who is very attractive and her grandmother, Okay? They're riding along, and, and the, the basketball player and the college-age girls are making these looks at each other. They're flirting with each other, and they haven't really talked much at all at this point. But all of a sudden, everything goes dark. They're riding through a tunnel, and several seconds of darkness, nothing. You can't see anything at all. And in that time, you hear two sounds, all right? You hear the distinct smack of a kiss, followed immediately by somebody's face being slapped. The girl thinks this. She thinks, man, I sure am glad he kissed me. That was great. But I wish my grandmother wouldn't have slapped him. 
The grandmother's sitting next to her, and she says, I cannot believe the audacity of that boy to kiss her while we're riding through this tunnel, and I'm glad she slapped him. Well, the coach is sitting there. He's kind of rubbing his face, and he's thinking, my goodness. I don't blame the guy for kissing this girl, but she didn't have to slap me. I think she slapped the wrong guy. Well, this basketball player's sitting back with a little smile on his face. He's thinking, man, this is awesome. I got to kiss that girl and slap my coach at the same time. Four different perspectives of one reality. Because there's only one thing that really truly happened, right? But there's four different perspectives on what that was that just happened. And you probably haven't had that experience before, but you probably had some experience where you and somebody else interpreted something in a very different way. Now, some people, when they hear about the death of Jesus... They don't see it as any different than the death of any other good teacher who was killed for the things that they had to say. Some people think that Jesus was a lunatic who died because of his crazy claims that in no way can be substantiated. There's other people who think that Jesus was nothing more than a liar who played on the emotions and the pocketbooks of some really gullible and weak people who need religion to prop them up in life. Gandhi was, the, uh, was the, civil, the great civil rights leader in India back during the 1800s, and he led India in, in opposition to British rule. But he wrote in his autobiography in the year 1894, he said this. He said, I can accept Jesus as a martyr. His death on the cross was certainly a good example. But that there was anything else to his suffering, like dying as a substitute for sinners, this my heart can never accept. You see, some people like Gandhi absolutely refuse to believe that Jesus truly is who he says he is. But can I tell you that I know without a doubt that Jesus dies not a liar or a lunatic or just a good teacher. Jesus died the son of the living God. And his death came in my place so I wouldn't have to die the death that I deserve to die and spend eternity apart from God. If you get this wrong, all of eternity hangs in the balance. If you get who Jesus is wrong, all of eternity hangs in the balance. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me, he said. What Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do is not to die a martyr's death for a good cause. He's going to be the sacrificial lamb of God who dies in my place and who's going to take away my sin so I can have a relationship with God. He died for you in the same way so you could have a relationship with God. The journey to the cross um, is one that is not accidental. It's not a charade. The journey to the cross was intentional It was a self-imposed death sentence by the Son of God to save us from our sin. And listen, I hope that you will take what I have to say today and that you will listen because it is eternally important. If you're a Christian already, then that is awesome. Um, But listen, we all need the fresh reminder of the links that God went to to save us. If you're not a Christian... There's never been a time in your life in which you repented of your sin and you gave your life to Jesus... You turned your life around to follow Jesus. Then what I have to share with you today is vitally important to you because you have a decision to make. Are you going to believe that God loves you 
and that he wants a relationship with you through Jesus? Or are you going to reject Jesus and the free gift of salvation that he offers you? Listen, that is the single most important decision that you will ever make. We are uh, entering into Passion Week. It's the week leading up to and including the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and today, this morning, and on Friday night when we come together for the Good Friday service, we're going to take a look at the journey to the cross. The journey to the cross. We're going to look at the events that led to the death of Jesus. And what I want to do this morning is focus for just a few moments on why Jesus had to die. And then on Friday night, we're going to take a closer look at the actual events of Jesus' death. Now, in order to really understand this journey to the cross, we've got to go back to the very beginning, okay, to creation. Genesis 1.1, the very first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Read a little bit later in Genesis chapter 1 that God looked at all of his creation after he had created it, and he said that it is very good. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no cancer, there's no car wreck, there's, no, there's, there's nothing that we can look to to say this is a bad thing, okay? None of that existed at that point. There was only one requirement that God had, and that was that he told Adam and Eve to not eat the fruit of one specific tree. I had somebody tell me one time, they said, well, um, if God um, didn't want sin to enter into the world, he's the one that messed up because he gave man a choice whether they would obey him or not. But listen, God doesn't create robots. The Bible says that we are made in the image of God. And a part of the image of God says that we have a will and an intellect that allows us to make decisions about whether, what, if we're going to do right or if we're going to do wrong. God wants a relationship with us that goes deeper than a relationship that your kid has with a stuffed bear. That stuffed bear is, in essence, a robot. It can't do anything for itself. Some, somebody else thinks for it, waves its little arms around. Somebody else moves it around. It can't do any of that stuff. We are not robots. God created us with a will and an intellect. But then we see the fall come about. The problem here is that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they ate that fruit. And as soon as they did, sin entered into the world. And, and, and before, it was a perfect, sinless world. Now it is stained by sin. It is cursed by sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are all a part of this. None of us is ex exempt. We are all cursed by sin. The penalty for sin is death. Because God's holiness has been defied. When we sin, we are telling God that what we want is more important to us than who he is and what he wants. And that's simply not true at all. We are not more important than God. The creation is never more important than the creator is. The penalty for sin is death. When, when, um, when Adam and Eve sinned, their bodies started on their way to death. But this death is not just physical. This death is spiritual if something doesn't happen to bridge the gap between God and man while we live here on earth, then we are going to spend eternity separated from God. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came to earth, God set up a temporary way for people to have their sins forgiven. They could sacrifice a perfect, spotless lamb, and that lamb would pay the price for the person's sin with its life. But this is only temporary. You saw the, 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 the lamb that was on the screen earlier. And I don't know about you, but as I'm thinking about that lamb, I'm thinking about that is what in the Old Testament paid the price for 
man's sin. But then we read later that Jesus becomes the lamb, the sacrificial lamb for us. In the Old Testament, the blood of that lamb could not completely take away the sin of the person. It's not long before the person sins again and they have to go and sacrifice another animal to cover up their sin. But all along, God has a plan for the ultimate forgiveness of our sin. In fact, Genesis chapter 3, we see God tell Satan, he says, hey, somebody, Jesus, is going to come and he is going to crush you. Yes! I can't wait for that, right? You are going to be crushed, Satan, for what you have done to all of humanity. We read in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and, um, and again in Ephesians chapter 3 that God had a plan since the foundation of the world for the redemption of mankind. Before you were even born, God had a plan for your redemption, for you to have a relationship with him. How's that relationship come about? Well, first of all, in this journey to the cross, it comes through a birth, a birth. Michael Card um, has written a book entitled A Violent Grace, in which he writes this. He says, the sounds of the first Christmas, the clip-clop of the donkey and as Mary and Joseph enter the quiet streets of Bethlehem, the rustling of straw as they make their bed for the night, the music of angels over those lonely hills, and the cooing of a baby. The sounds of that night are full of joy. Even the angels' announcement of Jesus' arrival roll out like hymns of grace Emmanuel, Savior, a light for the Gentiles, the Son of the Most High, glory. The notion of violence is nowhere to be found. You and I would like to keep it that way. Who wants to ruin a story of such beauty and hope with even a hint of pain? Certainly Mary and Joseph didn't. But when the proud parents took their newborn to the temple for his dedication, it was there. A hint, a scarlet thread. After Simeon, an elder and devout temple attendant, blessed the child, he turned to Mary and said, A sword will pierce your own soul. His words were unexpected. How could Mary have understood them? How could she, ha she not have been frightened? Simeon's words were the first faint whisper that the grace baby Jesus had come to lavish on a fallen world would be bought at a terrible price. Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. Let's continue on in this journey to the cross. We then have Jesus' earthly ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus has been baptized. He's come out of the wilderness where he's been tempted. And the first thing we find is Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time has fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, Jesus' ministry here on earth was relatively short. It was only three, uh, almost three years long. But in those years, Jesus packed them full of events that let us know his heart and why he was here. Um, you think about the, the, the miracles of Jesus. We see him heal sick people. He raised dead people to life. He cast out demons. He helped some fishermen catch a whole bunch of fish. That's a pretty awesome miracle, isn't it? Right? All the times we sit there and don't catch anything at all, and Jesus says, hey, just throw your nest on the other side, and all of a sudden there's fish everywhere. Um, he turns water into wine. He cleanses lepers who weren't even fit to be near other people because of their sickness. 
He calms storms. He gives sight to the blind man. He feeds thousands of people with just two fish and five loaves of bread. And, 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 and to kind of top it all off, he sticks the ear back on a person after Peter had cut it off. And these are just some of the miracles that Jesus performed. There's, there's many, many more. Then you think about his teachings. The greatest sermon ever preached was preached by Jesus on the side of a mountain with a bunch of people sitting around on the ground just listening to him. He taught things such as whoever would be first will be last. He taught the importance of loving God and loving other people. He taught that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He taught that your faith has to be like that of a child in order to enter heaven. Jesus had all of these teachings that were nothing short of incredible But in those teachings and in those miracles, we see the heart of Jesus, and it shows us why he came. You know, one of my favorite teachings of Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 11, and you don't have to turn there. It's going to be on your screen for you, but here's what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Are you tired today? Tired of life? Tired of getting beat down over and over and over again? Tired of the toil just to make ends meet? Are you tired? What does Jesus say? Come here. Come here. Come to me. Come on, come to me, he says. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. I will give you rest for your soul. Dane Ortland wrote a book recently that's based on these verses, and here's one of the things he says in talking about Jesus. He says, his yoke is kind and his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke. His burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. That's his very heart. Folks, in Jesus' ministry, he shows us that he loves us and that he has a plan even for the things in life that weigh us down, that tear us up that make us feel defeated. He's got a plan for that. He's there to walk with us and to give us his non-yoke and his non-burden. Here it is. Take my yoke. Take my burden. That's the heart of Jesus. That's what his ministry here on earth was, was about. But as great as his ministry was, there came a point during his ministry in which Jesus turned his attention to going to Jerusalem to die. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, tells us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. When you set your face toward something, you are going in that direction. That is where you are headed. You are going with purpose, and Jesus is going with purpose to Jerusalem to die. And that's what brings us to the triumphal entry. We read about this earlier in in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Paul David Tripp says that there are six words that unpack this moment of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And I'm going to give them for you here briefly and quickly. And you can write these things down as we go through it. But first of all, we think of the word fulfillment. Fulfillment. 
Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets, but he's also coming to fulfill the plan of God. You see, it is God's will that Jesus go to Jerusalem to die. Jesus' motivation here is not popularity because that popularity is going to end very, very soon. With just a few days later, the people who are screaming Hosanna one day are screaming crucify him just a few days later. That popularity is not going to last. His motivation is to fulfill the will of God. Then secondly, we see the word humility. Humility. Here's what Paul Tripp writes about this. He says, Jesus, riding on the coat of a donkey, is not playing to the crowd. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has come to the throne of David to set up a kingdom that will have no end. Yet this moment is not about him. It's not about how much the crowd loves him. It's not about how big the crowd is or how exuberant their celebration is. This moment is about one thing, the redemptive mission that was the reason for his birth, his righteous life, everything he taught, every miraculous act, his final trip to Jerusalem, his trial, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. He did not come to collect followers who had, who, who had delivered fame and power to him. He came to seek and to save the lost. And to do that, he had to be willing to humble himself suffer. The greatest man who ever lived was also the humblest man who ever lived. So you got the word humility, but then you got the word majesty. While Jesus is, he's coming in humility, he's also coming in majesty. These two things are not at odds with each other. They're, they're simultaneously important here. Ever since sin entered into the world, Creation itself has been begging for this moment when Jesus would come. He's riding in as the conquering king. He's making his presence as the king of kings known. The people are crying out, Hosanna, which is a cry of save us. It's a cry of praise. We believe you can save us is what they're saying. We believe you can save us. They're, they're praising God. They're, there's, there's adoration that's coming to him. It's majesty. But with that majesty also comes the word misunderstanding. The people thought Jesus was there to overthrow the Roman government. They thought that he was about to go and lead an uprising against the Romans and that the, the captivity and the bondage that they'd been in for hundreds of years would now end. They misunderstood Jesus' purpose in entering Jerusalem in this way. You see, in reality, Jesus was simply following his Father's will, just going along with what God was calling him to do. And this brings in the next word, servanthood. Servanthood. Right? So the account of the, the triumphal entry is in Matthew chapter 21. If you go back just one chapter, Matthew chapter 20, here's what Jesus said. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus knew that his mission was to die he could have chosen to resist God. He could have chosen to not go through with all the suffering that he's about to experience, but he didn't. He chose to take on the heart of a servant in submission to its master. Servanthood. And then there's the word eternity. Sixth word, last word, it's the word eternity. If you were to take a poll of all the people who were there ushering Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, and you asked a simple question... And you ask this question right here. Are you thinking about the present or are you thinking about eternity? 
What do you think their response would have been? I'm thinking about right now. This is awesome. I get to be a part of this moment. I get to see this, this new king ushered in. I think they would have been thinking exclusively about the present. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus had eternity in mind. And this ride on this donkey was one that while it was leading him to his death, it was also leading to our eternal salvation. All right, now, this is the journey that, that, that has led us right up to the cusp of the cross. When we come back together on, on Friday night for the Good Friday service, we're going to walk through the events of, of Passion Week and we're going to see what Jesus went through for his death. This is a journey of God's amazing plan for our salvation. But I want to back up for just a moment to the passage that we read at the beginning. Matthew 21, starting in verse 10, says this. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. What were they saying? Who is this? Who is this? It's coming riding on this donkey into the city. Everybody's praising God and saying, Hosanna. Who is this? Well, the general consensus of the crowd is that he's a prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. But let me ask you something. Based on what you know right now of Jesus, who would you say he is? Would you say that, that he is a lunatic? Would you say that he's this crazy man who is nothing short of bizarre and that's all he is? And that to put your trust in this crazy man would make you crazy yourself. Would you say that he's a liar? Claiming that he was somebody that there's no way that he could actually be that person. So you can't trust him because he's a liar. You, you can't trust him because he said something that you can't believe is true. But there's a third option. And I believe that there's only one of three options that all of us are choosing. You can choose that he's the lunatic. You can choose that he's the liar. But you can also choose, no, he is Lord. That's the third option. Which one is he to you? And I want to ask that you just bow your head and close your eyes. And worship team, stay where you're at for just a moment. Everybody just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I can imagine that in a room this size and with those who are watching online right now, that, that there are people watching who there's never been a time in which you definitively said, I believe that Jesus is liar, lunatic, or Lord. But there's no other option. And I told you before that eternity hangs in the balance of you being able to answer the question of who is this? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. No, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. And I can imagine that for, for some in this room, there's, there's never been a time in which you just definitively said, I believe Jesus is Lord. And you've never repented of your sin. That means turned away from your sin. And you've never surrendered your life to Jesus to say, I want you to be Lord of my life. 
I'm tired of trying to do it myself. I want you to be Lord of my life. You can't answer anything except one of those three options. So what's it going to be? And if you decide, you know what? I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I believe in Jesus as the only way to God. I believe that he did everything necessary to pay for my sin. I believe. If there's never been a time in your life in which you did that, but you want to, would you raise your hand up and look at me? Keep it up so I can see it. You know, this is an opportunity for every single one of us to just simply remind ourselves that we have proclaimed Jesus as Lord. If you've done that in the past, that's, man, that's awesome. That's fantastic. But how often do you remind yourself that he really is Lord? So just spend one, maybe 10, 20 seconds in prayer and say, Lord, show me what it looks like for you to truly be Lord of my life. Oh, Father, thank you for this journey to the cross. There's so much of it that, Lord, we look at it and we realize, oh, our God is so great that he would put this plan in place. We were the ones who made the decision not to follow God, to, to disobey God. And yeah, we're not Adam and Eve but we're Adam and Eve's descendants and sin passed down, a sin-cursed world has passed down since then. But Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come to you and just simply proclaim you as Lord. Father, I pray that you will draw us close to you, that this week as we look ahead to the death, the resurrection of Jesus, Lord, that you will open our eyes to see things that maybe we haven't understood before, to draw close to you in ways that we haven't in the past. And Lord, I pray that you are magnified. Who is this? It's the King of glory, the Son of the living God, the Redeemer, the one who provides life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.